VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you so much for tuning into the program. It's Wednesday, April the 20th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's producing the program. Let's get it going. If you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial to get in the queue and on the air is 273-5211, or elsewhere, it's toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 86. 26. Well, come on with a little bit more warmer spring weather. Another gray, overcast, chilly, windy day here in town. I know there's some pretty dastardly weather forecast for certain parts of the province with some freezing rain. So let's get through this and get into some sunnier, warmer days sooner than later. What do you say? All right. Uh, tonight, Game 3 of the Herder Finals is out the uh, Southern Shore to Kenny Williams uh, Memorial Arena. The Shore are up two games to nothing over Clarenville. Game 3 tonight, puck drop at 7.30. I want to say congratulations and good luck to the Pinnacle Growlers. They won the Provincial U18 AAA Championship in Game 6 over the Tri-Pen Osprey a couple of nights ago. They're now uh, set to kick off the Atlantics. It's being held out in paradise at the Double Ace Complex, uh, also representing as the host of the East Coast Blizzard. The winner of the Atlantics moves on to play at the Nationals, the Telus Cup, coming up in Calgary later this year. Used to be known as the Air Canada Cup for guys of my fitness. So good luck to both the Pinnacle Growlers and the East Coast Blizzard in the Atlantic Championships for what they used to call AAA Midget, but now they've gone to all these age designations, which I'm still having a hard time wrapping my mind around, to be honest, but good luck to all hands. Hey, a couple of uh, thank yous and congratulations. These are the RecNL winners this year, recipients of the Kevin Waterman Student Scholarship. Mr. Waterman was a real leader in the recreational world, spent some 38 years, dedicated, passionate years of leadership inside RecNL. So the two winners this year, Holly Hederson, she's enrolled at Academy Canada's Therapeutic Recreation Program, and Jamie French, he's also enrolled at CNA in the Community Recreation Leadership Program. Well, good luck and congratulations to both of the recipients this year, the Kevin Waterman Student scholarship. Right. A couple of baseball notes. So we know that organized baseball is celebrating 75-year anniversary here in the city of St. John's, and they got a lot of cool stuff up their sleeve for these celebrations. Also, coming up in August, Baseball NL, in conjunction with St. John's Baseball, are hosting the Nationals for the 21 under-21 Women's Championships coming up August 11th through the 14th. The host committee is reaching out to the general public and some of the businesses to who wants to be providing the transportation services. So you go to Baseball NL's website or St. John's Baseball and if you're interested in reacting to that and looking forward to going to the ballpark, we can talk about that today if you're into it. All right, a couple other baseball notes. Pretty legendary stuff. Two of the iconic Major League Baseball parks. We all know that Major League Baseball is now underway. But it was today in 1912 that Fenway Park, Cathedral of Baseball, first opened as the home of the Boston Red Sox. Also one of the other best-known ballparks, a real beautiful field. They only put lights in Wrigley Field not so long ago. So the Cubs played their first game at Wrigley. It was then known as Wiggum Park before William Wrigley Jr., of course, the chewing gum manufacturer. They bought the Cubs baseball team and renamed the stadium after himself. So Wrigley opened today in 1916. Pretty cool stuff. Uh, two splendid ballparks. It wasn't that long ago, uh, Terry Hart, former uh, VOCM employee, of course, he was with us for decades, maybe some four decades, great fella. Himself and former Premier Roger Grimes completed their tour of every single Major League Baseball park on the circuit. What a bunch of trips that must have been, anyway. 
And if you will go to a major league ball game, of course, the beers are expensive. And alcohol is going up here in this province, the price of. So we heard that the price of everything, well, everybody knows the price of everything is skyrocketing. Looks like a little bit of a bump again in gas and diesel tomorrow, maybe a little bit of relief in stove oil, even though it's becoming very tricky for anyone to forecast what's going to happen with the price of these fuels. But the price of alcohol going up an average of 3.9% by May the 1st. So the, the, the real breakdown is beer will increase 4.5%. Wine will increase about 4%. Spirits will increase about 3.5%. That's all coming from the NLC. So ready-to-drink beverages, like coolers, they're going to go up about 5%. Here's the trick. You know, they'll blame all the obvious, right? The federal excise tax, tax the federal surcharges, the strain on the global supply chain, logistics, inflation, which we know is at a 30-year high at some 5.7%. Okay. You know, it's one thing if government would absorb some of these increased costs, given that the NLC continues to be a government entity at this time. You will hear a lot of rally cries about privatize, that's time to privatize. You know, the competition will see some control or stabilize prices. I know where that sentiment comes from, but if any of these impacts are as real as the NLC say they are, and we've seen it across the board with the price of everything that we touch, but even in the private world, do we really think that the prices would be controlled at this moment in time any different than the, the NLC? I don't know what this will mean for people's consumption and their habits and the amount they drink or if they drink, but the prices are going up, and anyway, like everything else. Now, in contrast in contrast to that, on April the 1st, the price of all the cannabis products sold by the NLC went down an average of 6%. They have a significant oversupply. Some of the logistics and transportation costs and global supply chain uh, issues are not part of the cannabis world because all the cannabis is supplied by Canadian producers here in the country. So price of cannabis down 6%, price of the alcohol and alcoholic beverages up some average 3.9% as of May the 1st. Your thoughts? Okay, I don't know about privatizing, though. Is that going to actually settle it? And on that front, again, a bit of broken record stuff. It'd be nice to know what's been recommended by the Rothschild & Co. group after the $5 million spent to evaluate, assess government assets all the way through. That's a conversation you're interested in. Let's do it. I read a story this morning that I'm not finding any great surprise. So if you listen to an environment minister federally, Stephen Gibo, regarding offshore oil opportunities off our coast. So he didn't come out and say it specifically, but there were certainly a lot of hints that Baden Ord may indeed, if the liberals remain in power, may indeed be the last offshore oil field approved. Now he goes on to say, with a little bit of self-protection, that it's up to the Impact Assessment Agency of Canada to adjudicate whether or not there are significant environmental risks. Okay. That's kind of hiding behind it a little bit, because remember, it was his office that required a deferral in the final say on Baden Ord, and I think many people still are a little bit surprised that it got the green light. The Baden Ord project was assessed under a past regime that was brought forward by the Harper Conservatives. Since 2019, these assessments and the parameters have been stiffened quite a lot. So he says, Mr. Gibo, Minister Gibo, it would be very difficult for a new project to pass the bar now established. 
that really does hint towards that's it. Now, we know that a lot of conversations happen behind closed doors. Of course they do. And even at the CNLOPB, they've deferred land sales for 2022, setting a variety of reasons. So what does this mean for people working in the industry? What does it mean for the producers when they hear these types of things from Minister Gibo? When they see the deferral of land sales at the CNLOPB for 2022, it's a bit of writing on the wall. Now, the Beta Nord project, so says the Impact, Impact Assessment Agency of Canada, would not cause significant adverse environmental effects, even though it's well off the shores, well off our coast, deep water. But Minister Gibo has pretty much indicated, if you read between the lines, that this is pretty much the end, the sunset, of the oil and gas industry in this province, if, if the federal liberals continue on the path that they are on. If you want to talk about that and offer your thoughts or concerns or questions, criticisms or applause, we can do exactly that here on the show this morning. And you know, I wonder where the conversation now lies with Nord. Equinor hasn't sanctioned the project yet in full. They did say that their break-even was around $35 per barrel. They've got some 137 mitigation measures in place to keep the uh, carbon intensity at 8 kilograms per barrel, vastly different than other uh, averages in the industry, whether it be off our shores, around 14-odd, internationally 17-odd, out in the oil sands of Alberta, around 77 kilograms per barrel of carbon. So... The old industry is a fascinating and very politically charged conversation, if you want to tackle it here today. We can do it. Also in uh, Minister Guibault's file, it looks like Canada, as much as we talk big smack about our environmental consciousness, remember when the proposal for a gasification facility or an incinerator, as people would like to refer to it, on Lewisport, and it got nixed based on a 1994 decision, I think, about the importation of waste. But it looks like Canada still continues to ship out our waste internationally to developing countries. Now, it might not be a big deal for some, but Canada, as my understanding, has still not signed on to the Basel Convention, which is an agreement internationally with a bunch of countries to stop shipping waste out to these developing countries. They become the dumping ground for many modern countries, and of course, that's ridiculous. In the last five years, there's been some 123 containers returned to Canada. We have some agreements to be able to ship out some sorted waste, metals and plastics, but they found inside these containers it was a mixed bag of all sorts of old grout that we were trying to dump in one country or another. There's been some fines levied. We don't really know exactly how many. Apparently some four companies have been identified. The fines have been minimal, but no names released. Minister Guibault will go on to say that until they're proven guilty in a court of law, they don't have the ability to release their names. Well, you know, a deterrent of a fine, say $9,000, some of these big companies who see it cheaper to send it abroad than to deal with the waste here in our own country, there's no deterrent quite like a name of shame, is there? They know full well they're not supposed to be doing it. You know, if you open it up and there's metals and household waste and unsorted plastics and all the rest that they can jam into a shipping container and willfully understanding that they're in they're not doing it by the rules and the laws that they're, as they're currently established. If you name them, that would absolutely deter other companies from doing the same thing. Now, I know it might not feel like a big deal to folks living in this country, but it is a big deal when we talk about our presence in the international community, the big game we talk, but the lack of the walk. So I think that was an interesting story to be read this morning. What do you think? Okay. So... 
Back when there was a, a commission into the ground search and rescue for lost and missing persons in Newfoundland and Labrador, chaired by Jug, Judge Igliorte, there was a bunch of recommendations came out of it, some 17. A lot of them improved, we're talking about improving conditions for members of the Newfoundland and Labrador Search and Rescue Association. There's about uh, 700 volunteers working in that group. There's been a lot of turnover and burnout, a lot of it associated with these people who are willing to devote their time to go on these searches and these rescue missions with all the fundraising that we're forced to do. So now in this particular budget this year, $1 million from budget 2022 and $775,000 provided last fall, that's, look, compared to the number that they formerly brought in, was $191,000 of funding from the provincial government. This is a big deal. Now, Harry Blackmore, who does terrific work for the Search and Rescue Group, he says the money's gonna be spent on a variety of different things. Training for the volunteers, much needed equipment upgrades, creating five new search and rescue teams in Labrador. But the question is whether or not this will be an annual fund. Because when they tabled their requests at the uh, commission, the search and rescue group said they requested $2 million in funding annually for two years to upgrade the equipment, and then a $1 million per year afterwards for training and equipment maintenance. Just imagine, like everything else that volunteers in this province touched, if it wasn't for their determination and their commitment, the government would never be able to cover the costs that are brought forward by the energies of volunteers. And inside search and rescue, absolutely the same could be said. So that's the question being asked as to whether or not that monies will become an annual thing. All right, how are we doing on the telephone out there, Dave? And of course, there is no end to the conversations and discussions and concerns inside of healthcare. You almost don't even know where to start that particular conversation on a daily basis. What they say is an unsustainable doctor shortage in Central. And we're anticipating a call from Dr. Jared Butler from Central today, or earlier this morning, to talk about the issues. And then you hear the College of Physicians and Surgeons, the Newfoundland Labrador Medical Association, calling out Minister Hagee on his comments that all of the doctors that have been placed in these primary care or collaborative clinics are all new to the system, when both entities say it's simply not true. You know, whether or not it's going to be part of the process that if a family doctor closes a clinic, joins one of these primary care clinics, whether or not they can bring their full patient roster with them, and whether or not that's the right thing to do. So even when we look at the fact that the minister says there's been a bunch of doctors hired, new, do new hires out in Central, some 36, but the problem there is that 45 left. So we're still down a bunch of doctors. And that's not only in Central, it's out in Bay St. George, it's up uh, on the Northern Peninsula, it's in Labrador, and yes, it's here in this region on the Avalon Peninsula. So any angle at healthcare, and there are unfortunately so many, but happy to take it on here this morning. Also, a lady asked me an interesting question via email. She says that she's got a bunch of friends, all women, who have received letters from Eastern Health talking about how their records have been compromised by the cyber hack. She wonders if any men <laughs> have received the letters. And you know what? That's a curious question. I've heard from a bunch of people. I mean, dozens, if not hundreds of people about this issue. A couple of men have sent me emails regarding those letters and some questions about Equifax and credit monitoring. But I don't know if it was them that got the letter or maybe their partner or their wife who got the letter. I have no earthly idea if this is a female issue, but she says everyone she knows who's received a contact from Eastern Health have all been women. So I just thought that was a curious one to throw out there on her behalf. All right, what do I got here? Oh, okay. 
want to say happy 42nd anniversary to Bill and Shirley Etheridge out of Mount Pearl. I love from their daughter Jennifer, uh, son-in-law Dwayne, and their three grandchildren, Abigail, Kayla, and Amy. Happy anniversary to Bill and Shirley Etheridge, Mount Pearl. 42 years married today. Brilliant. All right, we're on Twitter. Not that brilliant. For VOCM Open Line, follow us there. Our email address is openline.vocm.com. Let's get a tune on the go. I mentioned I try to sneak in a daily walk. Today in 1957, the great Fats Domino. Now, I had no idea that that wasn't actually his name. He was born Antoine Dominique Domino Jr. in New Orleans, Louisiana. Back in 1926, he was born. He's one of the pioneers of rock and roll music. In fact, his first single in 1949 was called The Fat Man, cited by some historians as the first rock and roll single. Fats Domino sold more than 65 million records with a bunch of hits and always reminds me, uh, reminds me of my father. So today, in 57, for the sixth straight week, he was at the top of the R&B charts with I'm Walking. When we come back, I'm talking. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. So I, I mentioned that on a lady's behalf that all her friends who received a letter regarding the cyber attack and Eastern Health's communique were women. Apparently, and this is a few ladies have chimed in since uh, we went to the break. This lady says, no one in my family received a letter. So I panicked, of course, and called the number on the letter. They assured me it was because I'd been to the breast cancer screening clinic in Sa- at St. Clair's a few years ago. That's why they got the letter. So that's three women in a row said it was all directly related to the fact that they were at the uh, St. Clair's breast screening clinic. Okay. All right. Helpful to know what's happening out there. Let's go to line number one. Dave, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Good morning. How are you this morning? Fine. Uh, blow, I don't know what it's like over there, but the wind's blowing large here. It's blowing pretty hard here, but it's pretty cold and gray. I'm ready for some warmer days, I can tell you that. Me too. My God, it's no truer statement made. What's on your mind this morning, Dave? Well, what's on my mind this morning is basically... What I see as a need to depoliticize our healthcare system completely. How has it been politicized, in your opinion? Well, first of all, I guess you have the thing that I witnessed first in the news comments made by Health Minister draws the ire of the Newfoundland and Labrador Medical Association College of Family Physicians. That being, I guess, an accusation that Dr. Haggie has not been completely upfront in uh, what he said, in particular this time about the collaborative care clinics that are being formed, which, you know, that's become a hot topic as well as the, the health accord, uh, both sides playing politics of what's right, what's wrong, and then, of course, playing the blame game, which I listened to this morning. I had to... I don't just, when I see something government does that I don't agree with, I guess people are quite aware I speak out. This morning, I heard the opposition, have a, let the, uh, witness the opposition have a crack at that. Mr. Paul Din, who don't know him from Jacob, not going to judge him, sure he's only trying to play his role, but it made it blatantly apparent to me this morning that how can you really get a sensible approach to fixing anything in government if both sides are playing look what he did look what we didn't do whatever the case may be that's my basic need to say depoliticize healthcare because this morning i had to listen to paul din talk about this collaborative effort i guess and then the the lack of doctors in a portion of the province i guess that are experiencing it now <coughs> pardon me 
they're experiencing doctor shortages now, and he said that it wasn't really attributable just to COVID, but it was more sensibly laid on the lapse of the last seven years of this new government. Well, first of all, that's politicizing and deflecting the truth, because I started fighting this back in the early 2000s. That back in the days of Tory government, when our local MHA today was Joan Burke, and she dropped a bomb on us. I was, I think, I was mayor at the time, about closing nine clinics in Bay St. George, which subsequently happened, no doubt. The current situation and the current things being experienced in other parts of Newfoundland, we've already gone through. We fought them. We lost. We have what we have today. So basically, not much has changed since the early 2000s in terms of not only the delivery of health care, but about where problems and issues are faced and not faced. Because as foolish as it is to say now that, okay, the what you're experiencing with, like, say, no doctor here, no doctor there, we're about ready to see that galvanized by the implementation of the health accord. This is a current thing where you have recent uh, doctor shortages or doctors missing from certain areas. The new health accord is about to put that in place as part and carte blanche as policy. Well, I, I've never really quite understood your position on the health accord issue there. The most important, the, poli- the politics associated with health care, I don't know how helpful it is to talk the way some people do, but, uh, you know, I would imagine in their quiet moments, they're pretty happy that n- uh, neither one of them are actually the Minister of Health at this moment in time, because this is a lot more complicated than I think people give it credit for. And it's a lot older than Oh, absolutely. Of course it is. Yes. The, now, the health accord- being a, a fact, do we have to live with that, Patty? Well, that's a good question, but I, I do think people just figure that all you have to do is throw money at the problem and it goes away. But is that really true? Because in healthcare, we spend a lot. It's over a third of the budget, right? And highest per capita in Canada. Of course it is. And are we getting the positive healthcare outcomes? I would suggest no. no. So the attractive nature of a smaller portion or a rural isolated part of the province for a highly in-demand mobile profession like a doctor, I just think that we're... I'm curious to see the, the blueprint for implementation from Health Accord, because we can talk about putting a doctor here and emergency services there, all those types of things. But the trick to dealing with healthcare and healthcare delivery is, I to think, politicize it. Well, I, 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 that could help, I suppose, but I don't think that's the biggest deal. The biggest part of the Health Accord for me would be more heightened attention to the social determinants of health. The less interaction we have with healthcare, the less these problems will rear their ugly head and develop the crisis that we find ourselves in. So until we figure out how, why, where people are as sick as they are and what the root causes are, unless we deal with that, then we're forever a day going to be chasing our tail. We're just going to continue to react to sickness versus try to keep people healthy. And there's a variety of things that are pointed out already in the initial work done by the Health Accord. People don't want to hear that. They want immediate solutions to the fact that they don't have a doctor. Is it as simple as just pay them and they will come? I'm not so sure that's the case, which is why all these recruitment uh, policies and processes, they have to be tailored to one specific area, one clinic, one hospital or another, because it's a different issue working in Gander or St. John's or Rose Blanche or St. Anthony or Stephenville Crossing than it is just to say, come to Newfoundland and Labrador. That's not going to work. 
No, and I guess up until this point in time, they've laid their hats in some pretty foolish areas, like let's keep more of our doctors here who graduated and whatever. What are we going to do, keep a bunch of junior doctors with no experience? That makes no sense. Yeah, we Why need not? some of them. We don't need to keep them all. I oh, guess, yeah, we whatever. do. We need as many as we can keep, period. We, we certainly do, but we can't have only that. And, I mean, if we're going to have recruitment and retention that makes any sense, it's got to be done by people that are making more sensible decisions than saying, uh, okay, no, we're not. We're, there's all new doctors coming here, when clearly doctors have left their own clinics, can't take their clientele to move to a collaborative clinic. That reminds me of the old adage of the native that said that the white man believes that cutting off top of blanket, sewing it to bottom of blanket, you have bigger blanket. No, you're deflecting the problem. And what's gone on here now for too bloody long is that decisions to such as the likes of building like that $750 million colossal uh, screw-up at this point in time in Cornerbrook, I don't mind saying it, you're not going to have doctors or you're going to have a very limited doctor uh, availability and very limited ability at, say, Stephenville Hospital being downgraded to level one, a community hospital, as opposed to now the big show being in Cornerbrook, a regional hospital. And in their grand wisdom, somebody decided even in an over, under, under capacity, I guess, an over need situation, will cut down the number of hospital beds in our hospital in Cornerbrook will by 45 so that, that's where we're heading we'll have less and then that's where we're heading pardon that's where we're heading yeah and then we also say okay we're going to cut down the number of inpatient beds in stephenville and inpatient care and that'll be moved to cornerbrook you've just galvanized basically the decisions that people are currently saying aren't right that they're currently trying to fight which is direct and quick access to doctors like in the case of an accident somewhere in the area where you don't have two hours something happens you need quick access quick medical care by the budget it might make more sense for these things to be centrally located but if you live somewhere outside of that regional hospital with any appreciable distance and you no longer have these clinics, you no longer have these physicians, then I'll go so far as to say these decisions in the past were all politicized. They were all political decisions, like the billing of that new hospital. We should have better equipped and more better staffed in an older building. That would be great. Matter of fact, we had that in Stephenville with the old cottage hospital. They built a new one and started removing the services not long after the paint sure, dry. But it all will boil down as to whether or not we can attract a healthcare professional to live and work in certain parts of the province. And if we ignore that and we pretend that's not the case, then we're just going to be chasing our tail again. Because well, that's I, I the absolute facts of the matter. Uh, uh, anyway, I'll give you the last word because I have to go. Yeah, I haven't heard any tell of probably some type of effort to go and recruit doctors from the Ukraine. I'll bet you there's an awful lot of them would leave there certainly quickly to come work in Bay St. George or outside around the Bay in St. John's, but I haven't heard that. They might be occupied at the time, at this time. Well, I say of the three million that have left that country, that some of them have left and that they're accessible and that if you wanted to truly change things, that some of these types of things would be dusted off. Maybe depoliticizing, maybe taking health care okay. and putting that in some form other, 
might allow these type of things to happen. I would imagine the office that the province has established in Warsaw is certainly attentive to skills required in this province. If they're not, then there's no sense being over there. I appreciate the time, Dave. Thanks for the call. Thank you, Betty. All the best. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye. Will I take a break here, David? Yeah, let's take a break. Let's hear it directly from the professionals themselves. Dr. Jared Butler, he's out in Central Health. He wants to comment on what we see and has been referred to as an unsustainable shortage in his region. Don't go away. Weekdays on VOCM, it's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number four. Good morning, Dr. Jared Butler. You're on the air. Morning, Patty. How are you today? Doing very well, thank you. How about you? Not bad. Can't complain. I appreciate the opportunity to speak to you and the audience today, uh, talking about some of the concerns we're uh, having with healthcare here in Central Newfoundland. I'm calling in uh, as my direct medical director of primary care for Central Health, and um, I think it's safe to say that uh, everybody's aware that we have some uh, challenges when it comes to uh, physician and HR resources, but we're doing the best we can out here to try to support the people and support the communities in Central Newfoundland. One thing, you know, when we talk about a doctor retiring or leaving, retiring is one thing. They've come to the end of their professional career. Fine. But when doctors leave for what they would consider greener pastures, what type of exit interviews do we do so that we can identify where maybe the health authorities come up short or whether it be a lack of training or opportunities or amenities or the location? What do we do with an exit interview so we can do better the next time a doctor's brought on? Well, actually, that's a really good question. You know, we've been doing them out here uh, since I've been in this job over a year now, uh, talking to physicians uh, and other healthcare professionals when they when they do leave central health and move on to other opportunities. And it's interesting to get their feedback because uh, they've been very honest with us and talking about some of the uh, insights they have, some of the things that they came up against that may have been roadblocks for them, or perhaps it's not even for them, maybe it's for their families. Mm-hmm. And what we've done out here is brought together a, a group, um, a united, uh, I guess, coalition to look at the recruitment, onboarding, and retention uh, between Central Health, uh, our local family practice network, Shalloway. Uh, we're involving our MON education stream, and most importantly, we're involving our communities, the community advisory communities from all the different regions in Central. And we're talking about these um, these uh, issues raised by the exiting staff and trying to look at ways to overcome them and make sure that, you know, if there was a, a gap in, in what they saw uh, as a professional, if they uh, needed some help or assistance, that we can provide that down the road and we don't have that happen again for them. Simple things like, you know, snow clearing or, uh, you know, maybe they need to know how to access a lawyer or a bank or, or things like that for some people. Or maybe there are other needs that they have that we try to uh, make sure we, we help them out with as a partnership. Is there a common theme, especially on the professional front? Because, I mean, snow clearing and stuff, that's going to be a pretty common thread, I would imagine, yeah. throughout the province. But on the professional front, is there any uh, common themes throughout the exit interviews as to why they're leaving? Uh, you know what? I don't see there's a common theme, to be fairly uh, honest with you. P- people have different reasons for going. Uh, people are talking about what their own personal needs, what their own personal career directions is, what's best for them or their family. And that, of course, differs from individual to individual. What we are trying to do is offer things for people in the form of education, uh, try to offer them support as best we can, uh, putting into place uh, um, uh, workplace policies that do try to lend themselves to be, I guess, more wellness uh, derived, uh, try to support them and make sure they don't end up in a situation where they're uncomfortable or, or overworked. Uh, we're trying to do what we can to be team players out here, and uh, you know we're shifting a culture, and we're working really hard at it. Uh, it's not easy uh, in this landscape because uh, I'm sure, as, as you and many other people are aware, I mean we're in international competition now, uh, not just provincial or national, but international competition for primary care providers is such a short resource uh, that's highly in demand. So 
we're doing what we can to set ourselves apart to, to try to drive that recruitment and most importantly the retention. I wouldn't ask this of you specifically because you're well-rooted in central health at this moment in time. And I've made this comment, I'll get your reaction to it, is that it's not a one-size-fits-all in the recruitment world. It's different to recruit for uh, Labrador Grenfell than it is for Central. It's different for Western than it is for Eastern. When we know that, like, if I was going to go consider working for a a company and I know someone who had left their or was working there, I'll ask, what's it like to work for that company? Yeah. When the doctors are leaving with a variety of concerns, and I know there's a private clinic out in Central that closed down. I can't remember the doctor's name off the top of my head, a female anyway. And she said she was just burnt. She's going to stay working in the hub, but she's just simply burnt out. How big a deal is it for the word of mouth to maybe paint this place as not that attractive as we try to recruit doctors? Well, I, I don't think you're wrong, Patty. I, I think, you know, medicine is not an overly large world. And whether you're a nurse or a respiratory therapist, physiotherapist, physician, you name it, if you're a healthcare professional, you know colleagues across the province and more than likely across Atlantic Canada and the country, if not around the world. Uh, you know, we had to do what we can to try to, to be supportive of people who are here on the ground and, and, and doing, you know, everything we can to try to make their life balanced, uh, try to make sure that they can provide the care they want to do and what they were trained to do. Um, it's not easy these days. Uh, you know, the pandemic has taken a huge toll on everybody in healthcare, particularly those on the front line. Uh, I have a great deal of sympathy for our nurses who work hard every day in the front line, and a lot of times they take a lot of flack, a lot of backlash. Uh, they take the brunt of the frustration of the general public, and that unfortunately happens. But we're doing everything we can to try to recruit, to take the load off of them, to try to give them uh, supports where we can. And no matter who you are in the healthcare system, I'll say at this point, you know, thanks for all you're doing. Thanks for standing up and caring for the people in the communities, because without you, Lord knows where our communities will be. Dr. Butler, what's the future of virtual care? A lot of people are resistant. They don't think it's what they need. They'd like to sit right in front of their GP to discuss their issues face to face. But we do know that it's going to be more and more the go-to, especially for some of the more rural, isolated places. Now, I know we've got to put the infrastructure in place with the reliable high-speed broadband. But what do you say to folks who think, you know, virtual care is not for me because at some point it's going to have to be an act, it's going to play an active role for most of us. What do you say to the folks who are not, they're weary of virtual virtual care? Well, first of all, I had to acknowledge it. You know, that's how they feel. I'm not, I can't judge how someone sure. feels. I mean, yeah. that's, that's how they feel. Uh, you acknowledge it and you have a conversation with them about it. it, it it's, it's an evolution in healthcare. I mean, our healthcare system, you know, is based largely upon the cottage system, which was a cottage hospital system built up from the 50s, 60s, and 70s into what we have today. And we, we had to go with the next stage of evolution in healthcare, and that is technology. Uh, we've been very innovative here in Central Health, trying very hard to provide access, support, and care for our patients in the smaller communities without primary care providers. We do have our two health hubs. We do have virtual ER. Uh, they are strained. They are overworked, unfortunately. They are uh, very much being pushed to the limit, but we're doing everything we can to support people uh, in their communities, and that does involve the virtual encounter. Uh, now, whether that is by phone, by video, uh, you know, I still unrecognize and acknowledge that people would prefer to sit in front of a physician, uh, of a nurse practitioner or a nurse, totally get that and understand it. But I think there are things that people don't recognize that can be easily handled uh, over the phone. Like if you need a, a refill for your thyroid medication for argument's sake, or you just need to get a blood work slip, we don't need to see someone for that. You can do that through a, a virtual encounter. Uh, but if you do have belly pain, well, I can't very well examine your belly through the phone or, or through a video. You know, you kind of have to come in. So there needs to be that balance, I think, in the system with the in-person and the virtual care. 
I, I look at the coast of Labrador uh, as, as a shining example in our province for how they have provided support and care for coastal communities in the big land uh, for a generation now uh, with the nurses on the coast, the physicians and the team back in Goose Bay and Lab West. Uh, I look at Northern Ontario, uh, um, Western Australia, Sweden, places around the world that are using virtual care as part of their toolkit and supporting communities and and rural and remote areas to make sure they do get access to top quality care. We're talking about a big change though, Patty. You know, people are used to what they're used to. Uh, This is the change that we need to, you know, bring in and and work people through. Uh, Last one for you, Dr. Butler, before I have to let you go. Uh, for me, the work the Health Accord team is doing is critically important because the way healthcare is delivered right across the country is not working the way it's intended to work. I think the most important part is acknowledging just how many people and how often we engage with healthcare. So the social determinants of health, because right now we're talking about hiring more doctors and who's going to have emergency services and all those types of things, versus understanding who you are, where you are, your gender, your level of education, the amount of money you have in your pocket as it pertains to interaction with healthcare. How important is that to you? Because for me, I think that's the number one thing the Health Accord is working on that should shine a very bright light on how and why we're as sick as we are versus trying to backfill doctors or nurses or nurse practitioners, what have you. Well, I think, Patty, the social determinants of health underline and underpin what you look at as top quality preventative primary care. If you start hitting the social determinants of health, if you start tackling that preventative primary care, you start cutting down on reactive care that people need to go to an emergency room or hospital for. Uh, you know, an ounce of prevention is worth a lot, right? Everybody knows that old saying. So t- to me, I-, I think, you know, looking at the social determinants uh, are, are important. I think they're uh, crucial to how we develop and implement a, a top-quality, uh, world-renowned, rural primary care um, program here in Newfoundland and Labrador. Look, we're in Central Health, we're going to start engaging with our communities. We've got a number of town halls coming up in the next uh, couple of weeks uh, in April and May. We do encourage people to check the website to look at those and come talk to us about this and their concerns. Uh, we're trying everything we can out here uh, to start that game, to get ahead of the curve uh, of the health accord, to, uh, to be, I guess, forefront uh, of this battle and, and to be innovative. Uh, and we're doing what we can to support people on the ground across the region. Uh, you know, I, I appreciate the opportunity to speak to you today, Patty. I appreciate your time, Dr. Butler. Thank you. Thanks, buddy. Take good care. Bye-bye. Dr. Jared Butler, Central Health. All right, uh, let's take a break. When we come back, there's a bit of phone scam there, and we do understand that Taylor's flipper truck, or their fish truck, selling flippers are at the waterfront today. Someone asked me whether or not I knew they were available. They are. Hurry up before they're gone. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's try line number three. John, you're on the air. I got a call two days ago from somebody representing... CARP, the Canadian Association of Retired Persons. Right. And when I asked him a question, oh, you're going to get a free year's subscription to CARP. You'll get this uh, Zoom magazine and uh, a couple of other things. And when I asked him another question, uh, right away I got transferred over to some... I don't know if he was East Indian, Pakistani, or what nationality he was, but all he wanted to do was find out uh, a few details of my, uh, I don't know, finances or whatever. And I said, uh, I think I'm going to pass on this. Uh, And he kept saying, you know, you're missing a great chance and all this. So I said, no, goodbye. Anyway, I did keep the number, and I talked to Dave just before you 
finished yesterday, and I have the phone number here. Do you want to hear it? Um, sure. Eight seven 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 six two zero zero nine seven. Okay. And I must say, Dr. Hagee never told a lie when he said about uh, doctors uh, not leaving their practice and going into this. He just never told all the truth. Yeah, let's stick with Carp for a second. So uh, I would imagine the appropriate rule of thumb or you know, a little tidbit of advice for everybody would be if you weren't expecting a call from CRA or the bank or Microsoft or CARP or anybody else, if there's something out there that can be of benefit to you, all you have to do is hang up and call them with a number that you can find. That wouldn't be a spoofed number because they can mimic a, a number that sounds and looks like it's coming from next door. So, for instance, I just had a quick look at CARP. Their phone number is a 416 area code, uh, 363-2277. So if I thought, wow, that member benefit that they're talking about on this unprovoked telephone call sounds great, I just say thank you very much for your time, I'll consider it, then I'll just get a number, a real number for Carp and call them back. That's what I would suggest people do with uh, all of these types of calls. There's another tricky one that goes around. There's an automated voice on the other end asking you very fundamental questions. Like even if, are you in Newfoundland and Labrador? And then you say, yes. Then all of a sudden they go on with a few other things and then the call gets disconnected. All they're trying to do is get your recorded voice to say yes because then they'll sign you up for all sorts of junk. Next thing you know, you're paying a bill for something that shows up in the mail. You don't even know what it is. So we've just got to be so vigilant with every time we answer the phone or open our email because the scammers are around every single corner. (laughs) I got a call one time from my own phone number. There you go. (laughs) so I mean they have access to very very high high quality gear yeah but that's spoofing stuff that's pretty fundamental these days and so getting a call from your own number that sounds like the the story to a slasher film the call is coming from inside the house (laughs) yeah but anyway I think Dave Callahan had enough to say about what he taught Dr. Hagee, and uh, this has not just happened in the last seven years. No. This is this has been going on for the last 37 years. Yeah, and again, look, uh, opposition parties are important, and their role is critical. Opposing it and questioning and holding governments to account is what we need them to do. It's actually a key cornerstone of our political system. But I would imagine, and they can set me straight, but offering a few more solutions, especially when we're talking about health care, because it should be the least politicized department inside government, some proposed solutions would be helpful. In addition to that, if I'm a, a Tory or an NDP or, or an independent member of the House of Assembly at this point, I I'm just thanking my lucky stars. I'm not the Minister of Health Community Services. Well, because there's no winning in that portfolio these days. I guarantee you that. It's no win-win, that's for sure. Anyway, Paddy, since Dave took all the all the the, the beef out of me this morning, uh, I'd still like to hear more about regionalization, and I don't. I haven't heard nothing. Not a thing. 
Well, we've heard from members of the, uh, of the municipalities of Newfoundland and Labrador. We've heard from several representatives of local service districts, and that's where the problem lies, is that they weren't involved from the onset inside the working groups at MNL because they're not members. But they don't even have enough details, so with the lack of detail, it's causing folks to say, no, it doesn't sound good. All it's going to mean is I pay more and get less. And I'm not so sure that's as accurate as the plan might unfold and again it's not going to be the same thing for every little county or these 25 regions that are being discussed so there's more details required i don't dispute that whatsoever now it falls to the responsibility of the minister uh, minister howell because now we need the lsds which i think are forming a bit of an umbrella organization to be directly involved with these conversations we just got to have some details so people know what they're talking about or voting for versus just the potential for to pay more and get nothing else so because that's we've kind of grown to a halt on that front and that's the concept is nope not interested in paying more property tax and not getting any better services or more services so i'd like to hear more about it too john to be honest with you yeah anyway well, appreciate the time anything else quick before we I go uh, buddy, I'd like to thank Dave for getting me a phone number in Ottawa for to uh, make a complaint about phone service again. Sure. Because our phone service here is garbage. You can make a phone call, maybe you might get the other person for a couple of minutes and by and by, call failed, call failed, call failed. Mm-hmm. And I wish that people here would phone in Ottawa and block that number so much that they'd have to do something about it. Bill, Fair enough. Bill, if you make a complaint, you might get service, you might get better cell phone service for a day or a couple of days and then it's probably dropped and that's it. I appreciate the time, John. I'm going to sneak out one more before the news. Okay, and thanks very much, buddy. You're welcome. All the best. Okay, bye. All right, bye-bye. Last one, let's go to Branch 1 of the Royal Canadian Legion and say good morning to Bill Tizzard. Good morning, Bill. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you this morning? Grand this morning. How about you? Oh, not too bad, sir. On top shelf. Good man. Uh, Patty, here we come to the time of the year again. Boy, with the flippers. I yep. want to announce that we're having a flipper roast beef dinner at Royal Canadian Legion Branch 1 on May the 10th. Uh, eat in at 6 o'clock, take out at 4.30. Uh, Patty, we've tried for the last two or three years to keep our uh, prices at $20. Unfortunately, this year, everything has gone up, so we had to increase them to $25. So, boys, get your tickets early, 579-8281. We have a limited supply of flippers. Looking forward to seeing you on May the 10th. May the 10th, it's 8 in at 6 o'clock, take out of 4.30, $25, that's understandable. I mean, even the price at uh, Taylor's truck, we know everything's going up, and that will be well, a justifiable uh, increase at the Legion as well, sure. Yeah. Doug Taylor, God bless me, done the best he could, but this year uh, he had to put an extra dollar on a flipper, so it draws up your cost pretty quick. Absolutely. So, folks, a limited supply if you're interested in a flipper, a roast beef dinner, 579-8281. Hopefully you sell it out, Bill. Uh, Patty, we usually do. When I usually phone you, we get it on the open line. The phone that takes about five minutes in the phone <laughs> just goes mad. <laughs> Love to hear it. 
So, Petty, to you and VOCM, I thank you very, very much for all the support you give us. Without fellows like you, we would not survive. Ah, we're more than happy to give it some promotion so that you can continue to provide the good services at the Royal Canadian Legion. Bill, it's always nice to have you on the show. Uh, Petty, I thank you, very, thank you very, very much, Petty, and you have a good day. And again, thank you to VOCM. You have a great day too, Bill. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Patty. God bless. Bye-bye. It's Bill Tizard, our buddy from Royal Canadian Legion, Branch 1. All right, so May 10th is the dinner opportunity, 579-8281. Now, we intended to get to a certain issue with Dr. Jared Baller out in Central Health regarding the upcoming virtual town halls. So Central Health is going to hold a series of these town halls to answer your questions about whether it be recruitment and retention, emergency, virtual emergency room care. So here we go. Town hall session number one is on the 28th of April from 5 to 6.30. Town hall session number two is on May the 5th from 6.30 to 8. Town hall session number three is on the 12th of May from 12 p.m. to 1.30 p.m. And town hall session number four, May 19th, 6.30 to 8 p.m. I'll have those details on hand if you're inquiring and want some, uh, to confirm some of the dates or what have you. Oh, no problem. Send me an email, send me a tweet, whatever you need. I'll pass it along to you. Today's a good day to get on the program, I'm told. In the St. John's, and look, the topics, whatever you're into. Uh, in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial is 273-5211. Or elsewhere, it's toll-free, long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. We're taking a break, and then we're coming back. Join us for On Target, one hour in which Linda Swain examines topics that mean the most to you. On Target, weekday afternoons at 1 on your VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Let's go. Line number one, Maureen, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Good morning to you. I just wanted to talk a little bit about my experience with having no doctor. Um, I, my doctor retired in the very beginning of 2019, and I tried for about a year, more than a year, to try to get a doctor, and I just I couldn't get one. I just couldn't get one anywhere. So I got really sick, and I ended up in emergency several times. One visit to emergency was the very day that the first collaborative clinic opened, and they gave me the phone number. So I was really grateful for that because, you know, I thought, okay, I can get a doctor now. So I, I put in my name to register, and it was months before I heard anything back, and I got an appointment. And I was really sick, and so they asked me to bring in stool samples, and I got some blood work done, etc., and made another appointment. When I went back the second time, I saw a different doctor, and I started right from the beginning with all my history and everything. Then I had to bring in more samples and get more blood work, and then I made another appointment for follow-up, and the same thing happened. So I expressed my concerns at that point. I said, like, no one's following me. I'm at work every day, sick as a dog. I had used all my sick leave. And I couldn't get anybody to tell me what was wrong. So anyway, I I was really upset. My mother had died of cancer. And uh, the nurse practitioner that I saw on my third visit said, well, do you want to see me all the time? And I said, I would really appreciate that. So we set that up where I would, I could only get an appointment when she was in, of course, which is fine, but I was seeing the same person. Through the jigs and the reels, she sent me to a specialist and I had cancer. And I just, like, I, I went through two years of working so sick 
And and anyway, in the jigs and reels, it all got set up where I was seeing the same nurse practitioner all the time, and I was happy with that. Then all of a sudden they announced that the new collaborative clinics were setting up, and they moved an established clinic from 50 Monday Pond Road to Pippi Place. They had to set up all over again, start all over again, and I just, I, I just can't see the sense of what they're doing. It will offer more people the ability to see a healthcare professional. I understand the worry that people have. They say, well, I was one of the 3,000 uh, patients on this doctor's roster out of Mount Pearl. Now that doctor is moving to a primary care clinic, and that means I've lost my doctor. They'll have to just put their name on the list to see if they can be one of the possible up to 9,000 people seeing a doctor. Because what we've done at this point is that most people think that they just need to see a white coat uh, GP, a medical doctor, when in fact going to a clinic, if they have a concern that can be dealt with quite easily by a nurse practitioner or a registered nurse or a social worker or a pharmacist or a doctor, you'll see who you need to see. So more people will get an opportunity to see a healthcare professional, but that doesn't do anything to offer cold comfort to those folks who have lost their primary caregiver at their own private clinic. Uh, I, I get that concern, but more people will get seen with these collaborative care clinics. I had uh, the same doctor for 40 years. I think I was just so used to her following up on me, and I lost all of that. And I was so, so sick. I'm still off work now, and this it's eight, eight or nine months later. And I'm so grateful for the care that I got and the surgery and all the rest of it. But I also worked in the, in the health sciences for eight years. And... I have never seen such a mess in my life as that healthcare system. It seems worse. And I think you hit the nail on the head with you got so used to. And that's exactly how people feel is they get used to something and then they see it as a loss, not as possibly a different tactic that healthcare can take to help try to benefit more people because you're 100% right. You have the familiarity with your doctor, 40 years visiting the same person. They know you, you know them. They're up to date with your physical and medical history. And now those things change and change is hard. Change is hard on the most fundamental things that we do, but change inside of healthcare is going to be a particularly tough task for government. You know, even if the health accord is going to make services different, hopefully better, it's not going to be easy message to craft because folks, when you're used to something, you want to stick with that. Any change at all leads you to be anxious and worried about the continuity of care and access to care, the ability to just call up and speak with the same receptionist that you talked to for decades to get you an appointment with the same doctor that you've been seeing for the same amount of time. So I completely understand people's worries. As we know, change is coming. Yes, I, I totally get that. And I wish I was 25 again instead of 65 because now I need a doctor. Right. But, uh, you know, like I, I just found the, the part that was lacking the most for me in the collaborative clinic was, like I, I said on my first visit, I'm really concerned about cancer because my mother died at 47 with bowel cancer. And here I was with bowel cancer, and I, I, go in, I went in second time, and they didn't know that, and I had to say it all again, and then third time I had to say it all again. Like, that should be on Meditech or somewhere, that history. There should be a chart or something that the second doctor couldn't look at and say, oh, my God, her mother died of bowel cancer at 47. You know, like... There's, there's history missing when you're seeing somebody different every time you go to a doctor. 
unless they're looking at a chart, which nobody opened a chart on me in there, and I've been going there for two years now, or, or since the day it opened. Yeah, with all of these structural changes, we're going to have to figure out the medical records bit a little clearer, because my understanding is, inside a private clinic, the doctor is an independent contractor, and all of your history is not uploaded to the integrated medical digital system, and it should be, because yeah. if we're going to see all these changes and all these clinics, and it's the first time you've ever laid eyes on someone inside this collaborative clinic, we can't start from scratch and be chasing around uh, medical records and paying a third-party contractor in Ontario to send back our own personal records. So we've got to figure that out because that's going to be a bigger problem as time goes on. And, Patty, that's another thing. I paid $183 to get my records, and nobody wants them. They're here in a folder. Three years later, nobody wants them. Yeah. So why did I have to, what, what a fool I was to pay for them. Well, I think it's something that we would all do because let's just say you're lucky enough to get an appointment and all of a sudden that appointment is a complete waste because there's no access to your history because doctors have to be careful, uh, you know, when it comes to prescribing a certain drug and or what the ailments you have presented with in the past, try to compare where you are today to the last time you were assessed. So I probably would have done the exact same thing and don't feel like a fool because you did it for the obvious reason. Well, I, I was right on the ball with trying to get a doctor then. I didn't realize it would take years. Right. And, uh, I, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty. I would have done a lot of things very differently. And, again, please don't uh, mistake my gratitude. I'm so grateful for what they've done. They saved my life. But what a struggle it was to get where I am now, and I'm still not recovered and not back to work yet. But... It's a year later, and um, again, like I said, I worked uh, for eight years with Eastern Health, and I came from a background of nonprofit. And with, like within a month of working there, I could see how millions of dollars could be saved. It's a mess. It, and and as far as Minister Haggy, like we used to shake our heads when he'd be on TV because he was so out of touch with what's really going on in the hospitals. And, you know, I, I'm not supposed to speak about this, so I'm not going to say a whole lot, but I'm just, you know, we're all si- we all sign an oath. We're not allowed to speak. So that's why the mess remains. I appreciate you making time, Maureen. I wish you a quick recovery, back to work, and back on your feet in full. Thank you very much, Patty, and you have a great day. Same to you. Take good care. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. Uh, Okay, let's take a break. When we come back, there's uh, Anthony Quinn. He's the Chief Community Officer for CARP. He wants to respond from what he heard from John a little earlier. John got a call from someone who said they were working and representing CARP. And because we're all so mindful now of whether or not we're actually talking to the organization or we're talking to someone else who's trying to glean some of our personal information, we'll hear what Anthony has to say right after this. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let us go. Line number two, say good morning to the Chief Community Officer with CARP. That's Anthony Quinn. Good morning, Anthony. You're on the air. Hey, good morning, Patty. How are you? Today? I'm doing very well. Thanks for asking. How about you? Uh, I'm well. Thanks very much. You know, we had a call in our uh, customer service center from one of your listeners in Bellevue, and he said he had heard a concerning story from one of your callers, and I wanted to see 
what that was and if I could clear it up. Sure. Well, I think the root of his call was he got an unsuspected or unprovoked call from what, what someone said was CARP, offering some benefits through membership or whatever the case may be. And I think just like many Canadians, you know, when we get a landline call and it's something you weren't expecting, the overwhelming concern is that it might be someone simply trying to glean your personal information versus an actual representative of CARP or Microsoft or the bank or CRA. So I don't think he was saying CARP is out there doing anything untoward. I think he was just saying that, you know, the possibility for a scam and sharing your personal information is something that's omnipresent in many of our minds. For sure it is. And I know my phone rings more often than not from people who are looking to do that. But in, indeed, we do have a partner uh, called Compar Action, and they provide alternative long-distance services and pricing discounts. And, and they have a national program where they're calling people who aren't CARP members, and they're offering a free CARP membership in a magazine if you're willing to switch your long distance to their service. So that's a real call. It's old-fashioned telemarketing, and they're still in that business. I have also, when the call came in, I very quickly went to your website, and right there on the home page, one of the, uh, one of the uh, folders that you can click on is avoiding scams. It, it, it's a very important issue, especially for our demographic, and uh, they tend to be more vulnerable to these uh, scams because they're generally trusting folks. And I, I, that's why I did want to call up and let them know that there, there are some programs still going on that can be trusted, but please do be wary. Uh, maybe one of the better things to do if you don't want to be called is get on that national do not call list and never give your credit card number over the phone. We're not calling and asking for anyone's credit card number. Comparaction would switch your phone provider with your current long distance provider and there's no need for financial transaction. So just for the, the basic broad strokes, what does CARP do? What specifically do you offer? Yeah, thanks very much. We're a national not-for-profit advocacy group and we advocate to the government and policymakers on behalf of older Canadians, Canadians as we age. We have a very active CARP chapter in your province led by Aaron Callahan out of St. John's. We have thousands of members in the province and hundreds of thousands across the country. And we're in every nation's capital and in Ottawa advocating on behalf of older Canadians on issues that are most important to them. Firstly, health care followed by financial and then fighting against age discrimination. Inside the financial envelope, uh, I haven't had a chance to read it in full, but I know that your organization reacted to the most recent federal budget. You know, with 30-year high in inflation, cost of living, which is, has an overlap, obviously, with inflation, not so much inside this budget specifically tailored to seniors. Give us some, some of your thoughts on what we just heard from Minister Freeland. Well, I would say that CARP members are disappointed in the budget. Some of the promises that have been uh, long outstanding from the federal government weren't there, including the increases to the OAS for uh, those uh, over 65, uh, matching the the increases in cost of living in those uh, those offerings, and then as well as the promises for uh, for CPP survivor benefits, the increases weren't there either. Well, not a lot for seniors in this budget at all, and uh, some long overdue promises that have been made during campaigns still not 
a lot of riding for us. It's one thing when we talk about pocketbook, but it's also something to be said for a conversation surrounding aging at home. So we can do a cost comparison, what it costs to occupy a bed in a personal care home or a long-term care facility or, or acute care, or the additional supports you may need to remain in your own home, which many seniors would prefer to do. So you guys are talking about creating an expert panel to just study the idea of aging at home. What do you see as the benefit of the percentage of seniors that that's their preferred option as opposed to, you know, if you really need some serious additional medical support then long-term care is probably the right place for you to be but we've got to do more to understand the cost and the benefit mentally and financially to seniors to age at home oh you're so right patty it's it's one of the biggest issues in our healthcare system now with an aging population uh, a shortage of beds in hospitals a shortage of long-term care beds taking care of people in their own home makes the most sense for as long as possible when we poll our CARP members 96 percent of them tell us they intend and they want to age in place to live in place. We know that everyone isn't going to be able to do that, and there'll be a certain number of people who, due to uh, dementia or other or other mobility issues, will have to have full-time care in an institutional setting, which we call long-term care. But many more people can be taken care of home if the government makes the right investments at the right time to keep people out of hospital beds, out of emergency rooms, and getting the care in their home uh, by PSWs, uh, personal support workers and nurses that's where the investment has to be made and it will provide savings knock-on savings right down the line how do we factor in and this is an issue which is extremely difficult to discuss but unfortunately and well i guess rightfully so we have to the forecast coming from organizations like the center for aging and brain health innovation they're talking about the numbers of canadians that may indeed be living with and diagnosed with dementia the pledge from the government has been relatively significant to try to understand the issue better and to put additional supports and to train caregivers to deal with seniors with dementia, whether it be living in their own home or otherwise. What should the listeners know about these types of developments and some of the numbers that we're seeing? Because they're really quite startling. And there's nothing quite as sad as watching someone deteriorate with dementia. No, it's a devastating disease. My father's going through it right now, so I'm a caregiver to him along with my mother. The the, the stark facts, as you say, are that we have a, a large demographic of baby boomers who are blessed with longevity. And along with that longevity and the large number of, of people in that demographic comes a increase in the number of patients who are going to be living with Alzheimer's and dementia. The, the world will look a lot different in 15, 20 years when there's many more people in that demographic and many more people needing care. So I think the entire healthcare system, as well as private service providers, are going to have to be aware of and preparing for the needs to, to care for these people. And they can generally be cared for in their own home for longer periods of time before they're required to have full-time institutional care. But the investments have to be made in the infrastructure now. It's not a secret to any policymaker or politician that this has been something that's in the offing and it's here now and it's only going to grow. So we need the investments in the home care and as well as preparing for the beds and the care workers in institutional care. And we know that there's a shortage of health care workers right across the country that has been compounded by COVID. And the, politi- the politicians and the policymakers uh, should be made aware by every voter, every constituent, that this is a pressing problem. We're just about to have a provincial election in Ontario, and CARP has made that our number one priority is investments in home care and long-term care. And that should be 
priority right across the country. Yeah, I mean, $20 million sounds like a lot, but over the course of uh, five years, $4 million doesn't get stretched very far this day and age when we talk about this type of work that needs to be done in preparation for the days to come. Uh, last one before I let you go, Anthony. A lot of seniors that I speak with, and I know the numbers from across the country, is not only about inflation cost of living, but the cost of pharmaceuticals. Now, we have to be careful that we're not over-prescribing people anyway, but when people are making a decision as to whether or not to take a half a dose or to skip a day, we know that that just might further exacerbate their illness or their ailments. So the, the supply confidence agreement between the Liberals and the NDP has led to more conversation about universal pharmacare. We're the only modern country on the face of the earth that has universal health care without universal pharmacare, which with a population over 10 million. We've got to figure this out. The work done by the Senate committee has long been clear. It comes with a whopping big price tag, but when you do a cost comparison with what happens if I'm sicker because I'm unable to afford to take my medication and end up in hospital, the most expensive place to be in the country. What are your members saying about the possibility to see finally universal farm care? People poo-poo it all the time to me. It's like, who's going to pay for it? Well, who's going to pay for people who are in the hospital beds? It's the most expensive place to be. Only second to that is being in the penitentiary. So what are your members talking about with universal farm care? Well, we're hearing a couple of different things. Some concerned about the cost and, and others concerned about uh, actually losing some of the opportunities that currently exist for some of the more unique or innovative medications that wouldn't be covered under a universal plan, where they may be now by some provincial plan. So the the intention of our members is to get more medications to as many people as possible without losing some of the, the access that they have right now. Uh, perhaps uh, looking at income-based plans or, or other uh, ways to access medications that ensures that everyone who needs it can afford it and get it. Uh, not quite universal for those. If you're bringing in $100,000 per year through your investments or your your, your, your income, your, your job income, you may not need access to a free universal plan. But we want to ensure that every senior who is in need has access to the medication is never forced to take half a dose never forced to skip a day because they can't afford their medication that's that's the uh, the wrong side and we know that it, like you said patty it has much more negative effects further downstream yeah, we'll always have to means test these issues. The devil will be in the details. Plus, we don't want private employers to all of a sudden drop their coverage for their employees because the feds are going to pick it up. So this is going to be tricky to do it right, I'll call it, quote-unquote, right. Uh, and plus, you made an interesting point about the access to what types of drugs. Part of the trade agreements we've made has complicated the problem because we've extended the patent for the uh, pharmaceutical companies before we can move off to the cheaper and yet extremely effective generic drugs. So we're going to have to tackle that at the same time as we talk about means tests and employers carrying their own weight. I'll give you the last word, Anthony, before we say goodbye. Well, Patty, it's been a pleasure to speak with you and your listeners in Newfoundland and Labrador. Uh, I'm happy to say that CARP is very active in the province, and I'd encourage everyone who's listening to you today to take a look at our website or get in touch with Sharon in Newfoundland, uh, sorry, in St. John, and think about becoming a CARP member. With more people and uh, more voices talking to government about these issues, we're, we're way more likely to make things happen. Strength in numbers, uh, the, the gray wave of political clout has long been a feature, although curiously, millennials make up the biggest voting block this past federal election. The website is carp.ca. Appreciate your time, Anthony. Cheers. Thanks, Mike. Take care. Bye-bye. It's Anthony Quinn. He's the Chief Community Officer with CARP. Let's take a break. Don't go away. Got plans for midnight? Bring your VOCM along with the best soundtrack for every night, anywhere. The VOCM All Night Show, midnight on your VOCM. 
Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number three. Good morning, Diane. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. I was calling about the wait times in the healthcare system. Mm-hmm. I can remember months ago you had a call from a man who was really upset because his sister-in-law, when he brought her to the hospital, only had days to live, and she had waited such a long time for an appointment. And another call from a gentleman who said, the wait times are long, but once you get there, you get good care. I went to the health signs about a year and a half ago. I was spitting up blood. I went in on a Sunday morning. The waiting area was absolutely full, standing room only. So anyway, the, uh, the, sorry, I went in Saturday morning. Sunday morning I left because I was just too tired to stay there. So I went up and told the girl at the wicket I had to go home. She said, you're okay. She didn't take my name or that they called me or anything. So I said, well, the heck with them. Came home, got washed and fed and laid down for a while. So then in the afternoon, I started spitting up blood again. So I said, well, I best go back in there. So in I went. I finally got to see someone inside. By Sunday evening, I was throwing up blood. I finally got to see someone Monday morning. So I was inside, and they did tests and yada, yada, yada. Then they sent me outside to wait in another room with another lady, and she was throwing up liquid. So Tuesday morning, they apologized to me because they didn't have a bed for me, but they gave the other lady a bed who was uh, covered by insurance through the government worker plan. So then... I said to myself, and then they gave me a, you had to go to a different section to be checked out, to be released. When I went in there, they gave me a bag to measure what I was throwing up as I was being discharged to leave that they didn't give me before. So then by and by, they were after doing a CAT scan, and I went to my family doctor. Now, that, that wasn't that right away. I went to my lung doctor after that, and he put the camera down my throat. My lungs were not all right, but they, it wasn't cancer. So then uh, he sent me for a CAT scan, and then a while later I got called to go to see my family doctor. She gave me an appointment with the surgeon in about a week or 10 days later. I didn't mark any of this down. So I went to the surgeon, and he said, well, I'm going to send you for an MRI on your internal organs, he said, to find out what's going on. That was, he sent that in, the receptionist did, the 19th of October. And then they had that big kerfuffle in December. So I waited until January. I called in to see, because I live in an apartment building. Sometimes we don't get our mail. It goes to somebody else's, and they either throw it out or chew it off. I don't know what they do with it, but they don't pass it on always. So I called in January, and she said, no. She said, I'm only up to uh, September. She said, maybe in a month or two. I said, okay. So then I called yesterday. No, she said, no appointment, maybe next month. Mm -hmm. So am I going to be the lady that gets in there and say, oh, I'm sorry. You know, you're just too far gone for us to do anything. When I get the appointment, I probably still will have to wait 12 to 18 months. So there is something wrong with however they're running that place in there. 
That's a distinct worry, and that's even echoed by the Newfoundland Labrador Medical Association, that what we're seeing is that people, given the wait times, and what's really curious is there was a report late last year about wait times, and Atlantic Canada lagging so far behind, but the report said that Newfoundland Labrador was doing pretty well. Now, the, the issue inside of that was that there was no data from a bunch of different specialties, so it didn't paint a very clear picture. So what the NLMA is saying is that we see more and more people that are presenting now sicker and sicker. Wait times have an appreciable impact, whether it be you're on the list for uh, coronary or, uh, or heart, tra- heart issues, or pardon me, heart cardiac surgeries, or to see a cancer specialist, uh, whatever the case may be. Apparently, the end result of not being able to get uh, early interaction with your family doctor is leading to people presenting just really quite ill. And that is a distinct word that I think everybody shares. Well, uh, I had a cousin die last year of the, God, I can't remember what the terminology is. He was thrown up, upper GI bleed. Okay. But anyway, the lung doctor fixed that, but nothing at that emergency clinic fixed anything. And I'm telling you, all they, half the time, they get the patients in their eight or ten beds, however many they got in there, send the blood work down, whatever. Then they're waiting two and three hours for that blood work to come out. That's why on the mainland you see beds out in the hall. There's no need for the backup at the health science. Just poor management. I would imagine it's a combination of all the worries that people bring to uh, to the airwaves, whether it be management or the lack of human resources on the front lines, whether it be the wait time for paramedics to offload their patients. There's just so many factors that contribute to the confusion and the long waits, which is, you know, anyway, I'm sorry, Diane, go ahead. And I don't know where to call to inquire about this or complain about it. When Jerry Rogers was going around with her last candidate there, she wasn't running in the election. I was telling her I was so frustrated about that. She said, we'll have to look into that. I said, Jerry, the government already has a plan for women over 60 with no insurance. She said, what's that? I said, they just don't treat them. That's not a very good plan. Well, it sounds to me just like what the government got going. And this idea of if that's what they're at, let them go because, you know, they got no pension or anything. That's your problem now with their finances. I bet donuts to dollars. They have so many employees that are retired and getting 60 or 70 or 80 percent of their earnings. That's the biggest expense here. Not health care, not education, retirement. You were you did mention, you know, where to launch a formal complaint and there is a complaint line at Eastern Health. I do have a number on hand if you'd like to take it. Sure, pen in hand. It's uh seven seven seven? Yep. Six five zero zero. Okay, then. Thank you. You're welcome. Now, the general practice there is that you're going to leave a message and they'll call you back. Uh, People do have success with it. There's also an email address, which is an easy one. No, I don't have a computer. Oh, okay. So there's the telephone number for you. Uh, Good luck and I wish you well with your health and anything else. Okay, thank you. You're welcome, Diane. Take care. Bye-bye. Will I take Greg here before the break? No, that could be a long conversation. Oh, take him. Sure, I'm into it. Let's go line number one. Greg, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Morning to you. Patty, this money that the government came out with lately, uh, this five-point plan, $200 for singles and $400 for couples. Right. When was that supposed to have been passed out? That's out the door already. Supposed to have been. 
So was it, is it sent out as a cheque or was it going to be deposited in accounts? Well, if you have a standing direct deposit with the government, it would have went right there. If not, it would have been a paper cheque if that's what you're accustomed to getting, yeah? Oh, okay, no, because my mom, she's 86, and I checked her bank this morning, and there's nothing being put in her account. Yeah, so th- there's a couple of different pots. If seniors were receiving a senior's benefit, there's been an increase from 1300 odd to 1444 uh, Income supplement recipients receive families up to $1,000 per year, and it didn't go a whole long way. Plus, there were some pots of money for top-ups coming from the federal government. For instance, if you got, uh, if your guaranteed income supplement was in because you received a pandemic support. I'm pretty sure this doesn't apply to your mother, but I'm just giving it out for general info, is if you were impacted there, and this is updated information uh, from yesterday from the federal government, is that there's a one-time grant payment that compensates all eligible seniors for the full loss of the GIS or allowance benefits. So, for example, if an individual's monthly GIS was reduced by $100, that individual is going to get a $1,200 one-time grant payment to cover up those losses, just for purpose of information sharing. But your mother's money's that should be out the door. Okay. Okay, thanks very much. You're welcome, Craig. Take care. Bye-bye. Yeah, there was lots of talk and thought that the folks who had their GIS impacted, because, of course, it's measured against your net income, and if you receive some pandemic supports, you might have gone through the threshold and seen an impact on your GIS. So you're going to get a full-time, a full-bore repayment of whatever you lost in your guaranteed income supplement if it was impacted due to pandemic support monies. Let's take a break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Okay, let's go to line number two. Good morning, Nina. You're on the air. Nina, Nina. Sorry, Nina. Welcome to the program. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for taking my call. I'm not going to keep you, but uh, like I told your producer, that I did have received six letters from Eastern House about the cyber attack. Mm-hmm. Six letters. I haven't called them yet. I only got it a couple of nights ago. But... Uh, I don't know. The only thing, I did have some uh, x-rays and things done uh, for my license a few years back. But And so Black Marsh Road, that's another story. I'm not going to go into any of that. But um, And I have a bigger thing that I can speak with you one of those days, but I won't do that today either. I don't want to keep you. But I'm just uh, wondering if uh, everybody, other people, did receive six letters notifying them about the, the cyber attack might be a good thing but I don't need six letters nah, nobody does there's just a lack of uh, oversight to identify redundancies inside the system is my understanding I've got oh I'll just take a round number guess maybe 30 emails people saying sending me pictures of the fact that they got four five six letters so okay. it's just a software issue where they're sending out multiple letters to the same recipient why I don't know I thought it was special <laughs> well, you probably are special, Nina, but uh, this story is pretty common amongst the recipients that have uh, contacted me. I hadn't heard it, but I work with, uh, uh, East, well, it wasn't Eastern Health when I started for 37 and a half years. So I have an idea, that, <laughs> but not, not, not this, not six letters. No, I mean, it's unnecessary. What were you doing inside of healthcare? I was, uh, I went as a nursing assistant at that time, and I worked around different places when they were closing up the, well, it was Forest Road, sort of. I started in 57, and I retired in 74, but I ended up in Counts Payable. So, Forest Road, you're talking about the Miller Center? Uh, well, it is the Miller Center now. It was a 
the hospital at the time, Health Science wasn't. Well, we moved in mm-hmm. from Forest Road to Health Science. But uh, I guess there's a lot of changes. But I did uh, I did work around different places, especially when they were when they were moving the same way. I didn't want to go there. It's a bit further for me. And so I went, filled in a few places and here and there and everywhere, and ward clerk and whatever. And uh, most of it was enjoyable, but uh, I ended up anyway going and in the accounting office. Very good, yeah. And, of course, the nurse's dormitory there alongside the what's now known as the Miller Center as well. Yes, and my mother made a professional career inside of healthcare as well. Oh, good. Mm-hmm. Anyway, thank you. I don't want to keep you any longer, but uh, thanks for taking my call. And you are doing a wonderful thing. Thank you, Nina. I appreciate your time. Good luck. Stay in okay. touch. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, let's keep rolling. Let's go to line number four. Betty, you're on the air. Yes, Patty. Good morning. Good morning to you. Uh, uh, I'm looking for a place where I can get my income tax down. I know this one place is uh, Seniors NL. Mm-hmm. I think it's in around Topsail Road or Deluxe Road Deluxe. Yeah, it's like in Seniors NL office is in around, uh, what is it, uh, is it St. Luke's Retirement? Yes. Yeah, it's in there. I have another one for you as well. What's that number, Patty? Uh, for Seniors NL? Yeah. Okay, let me grab that. And I've got another organization that might be able to help you too. Yeah, good people over at Seniors NL. I've done some work with them over the years on a variety of topics. Okay, here's their number. It's 737. 737, yeah. 23? Three. Yeah. 33. Three. Okay. And also on Anderson Avenue here just off Elizabeth Avenue. Right. is the Community Sector Council for Newfoundland and Labrador. They offer a, uh, a tax clinic as well. They might be of some help to you. I'll give you their number uh, yes. as well as the Seniors NL. So they only offer a toll-free number, but that's good enough. It's one yeah. 866 Yeah, they've uh, they've had uh, clinics like that in the past. Now, this is just what pops in my head, and it's long been an offering. So I would try both those organizations because someone's going to be able to help you out. Yeah, they call it the Community Volunteer Income Tax Program. Yes. Yep. Okay, Patty, thanks for your help. You're welcome, Betty. Take care. Good luck. Bye. Right, bye-bye. And, you know, with tax season upon us, uh, yeah, everyone's favorite time of year. This year is going to be a tricky piece of business, isn't it? Because with all of the pandemic support monies that have gone out the door and it does indeed become taxable income, you wonder just how many Canadians, especially when we talk about the Canada Emergency Response Benefit, and some people were on it for quite a long time at around $2,000 a month. So if you didn't put away for the rainy tax day, there's probably going to be some tax bills for people who in the past were anticipating returns or very minimal tax payments. But of course, it's always helpful when you get your paycheck. 
from whatever company you work for, whatever organization you work for, and the taxes are taken out. Kind of steers you away from the need to be aware to slide some money out of your savings or checking account, maybe into a tax-free account or to set it aside or to ensure you don't touch it. Because you know full well that some of the CERB money and the tax implications is going to be a problem for a bunch of people. Even inside the CERB, I got this one guy that I don't know if he thinks he's convinced me of anything, but he's blaming the CERB for inflation. (laughs) Anyway, what do you say to that? But how people are going to deal with these particular things is going to be a problem this go around. I would imagine there's going to be an awful lot of payment plans negotiated between individuals and CRA, given the fact that this tax bill is going to be something in the past unknown to them. They didn't deal with it. They never had to worry about it. Taxes were taken out of their checks, and consequently there was very minimal numbers that had to be uh, settled or squared with the Canada Revenue Agency. But I think in the last couple of years we've seen a lot of people that the new money's coming in has not been prepared for as it pertains to the pending tax bill, both last year and this year. Let's check in on the Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. You can follow us there. Our email address is openline at VOCM.com. But, of course, as usual, great day to get on the show. If you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial is 273-5211. Or elsewhere, it's toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. We're taking a break, and then we are indeed coming back. Take a break. Join us weekdays from 1230 to 1 p.m. as we discuss anything and everything that's happening now. It's all on the table during your VOCM lunch break. Welcome back to the show. Let's get a quick reaction to Betty's call on tax services on line number five from Craig. Craig, you're on the air. Yeah, top of the morning to you, Patty. You too. Yeah, uh, just a reminder that uh, the CRA had volunteers at the, uh, at the Arts and Culture Center Library every Monday uh, for the month of May. Okay. And I went down there, and then there was a lineup, and... Uh, well, I'm not a senior, but I mean, it's seniors and low income, actually. So uh, uh, they actually took my name and number, and a volunteer called me back, and I did my taxes on the phone. I didn't even have to go anywhere. That's a good thing. I didn't know that was available, to be honest. Well, I learned about it on your show. Well, not everything that happens on the show uh, sticks in my my memory, to be honest with you, because a lot happens on this program. It could have been on a week you're off, too, right? Oh, possibly. But, I mean, I'm happy to try to recall whatever I can stuff into my brain, but sometimes some of these things just uh, pop out, unfortunately so. But there's another option between Seniors NL and the Community Sector Council. And the, uh, you said uh, Mondays? Yeah, and it, it only goes to, I believe, April 4th. Mondays only between... Okay. Uh, I believe it's between 1 and 4. Okay. It's a short, it's a short window, but however, if uh, if the lady that's that's at the door says, okay, we can only handle so many, she'll take your name and number, and one of those volunteers will call you back. Okay, sounds good. I will add that to my pile, and I'll confirm it with the library group that they're doing it again this year before I point too many people in the wrong direction because I, I did that a while ago with rapid tests and I got slapped well, on the wrist for it. Well, so, I, Well, like I say, I got my taxes done last Saturday because they called me back. Yeah, well, let, I'll do some follow-up, but I appreciate the information, Craig. Thanks a lot. Have a good morning, Patty. You too. All the best. Bye. All right, bye-bye. Uh, let's go to line number six. Alfred, you're on the air. Yes, sir. 
Uh, this money you're supposed to get, this $200, is all only pensioners getting that or just so many? The seniors, for, for those receiving income support, They'll get a check. It's 200 for singles, 400 for families. Folks who receive the seniors' benefit, which means you have net family income of around $19,200, you get a 10% increase. There's monies coming if your GIS was impacted because of pandemic supports, but the early part of money, that's already gone out the door, first week of April. The increase for seniors' benefit and income supplement, that's coming. Oh. How come everybody don't get that? You know, from 65 up. Well, I think in the 65 up, I think, is a reference to all age security, where they got a one-time check of $500 and then a 10% increase thereafter. And you're right, that's only for seniors 75 plus. And that's yeah. a straight up math issue. The, there's no other argument to be made there. The federal government just made a calculation that, you know, if, if we extend it to 65 through, then it would cost X amount more. And so they put a cutoff date of 75 plus. Yep, you're right. Yeah, but everybody's cost of living going up for everybody. Absolutely. If you're standing in line, 69 years old, your groceries cost the same as the person who's 79 years old. That's right. Yep. Take the, the, the $60,000 they got to spend on that old car race and put it on it. <laughs> yeah, and of course, that increase would have been a federal bit of money. But you're right. There's a lot of people wondering of the, the merit behind funding or assisting to fund uh, NASCAR races, even though that might have a nice economic impact. It doesn't make you feel any better when you're standing in line to either fill up your tank or to buy your groceries. That's right, sir. Understood. Yeah. Okay. Right. Any, no problem, Alfred. Take good care of yourself. Yeah. All right. Uh, oh, here we go. As a response to the callers on seniors, top up from John on two. John, you're on the air. Yes, sir. Good morning. Good morning. No, uh, somehow, uh, when this program of the 200 and $400 was announced, it got people the understanding that seniors were eligible. So uh, to make it a uh, long story short, I called the House of Assembly, and uh, they told me that it had nothing at all to do with seniors. It only pertained to people on welfare, on income support only i don't know where where the where the misunderstanding came from but anyway there's a lot of seniors like there's a man called in earlier this morning he talking about his mother you know he checked her bank account to see if she received it but uh, i think you should just explain to people who had nothing at all to do with seniors okay well, I'm very careful with that one. I say income supplement every single time that someone, uh, or income support every time I mention that benefit. Same thing when I talk about the those receiving the seniors benefit. That's a means-tested issue. So I'm careful to say it's not for all seniors. I try to break it down and itemize it every time because I don't want people to be confused or crooked with me or anticipating money that isn't coming. So I try to put the labels on it every time. Yeah. You see, uh, when it was announced for, uh, first, uh, somehow, uh, I don't know why, but it 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 misled people to believe that some seniors were be eligible for the two hundred and and the four hundred dollar benefit. Now, perhaps it would be, I don't know, but it had really nothing to do at all with seniors. It only do with people receiving provincial income support. 
yeah, the income yeah. supplement. You, you're right on that. And yeah, even in yeah. the seniors benefit window, that's only about 50,000 seniors in the province qualify for that too. So yeah, uh, government should be yeah. very, very clear. And I try to be very clear on those fronts because I don't need one caller or another to anticipate and be looking in their bank account or checking the mailbox every day for a check that's not coming. Yeah, I, I don't, like I said, I don't know where, where, uh, how it got uh, misunderstood, but a lot of seniors thought they were going to get the, either the 200 or the $400. But just, just to make it clear, you know, it's nothing to do with, the, the only thing that the seniors uh, are involved with is when you get your GST, HST combined check, and that's going to start in July, there's going to be an increase in that check. That's right. But other than that, there's nothing. And, you know, I went back uh, five years and checked uh, my old age security and my supplement checks. In the last five years, we got one check for $500. That was the only increase that applied to seizures, except that every, of course, you get the 1% per year. You know, it's the, it's the uh, cost of living we we get every quarter. Sure. Other than that, that's the only thing we got in the last five years, a $500 check. <laughs> so anyway, I just wanted to call and, and add my two cents worth. And I'm glad you did. Thanks for this, John. Thank you. You're welcome. Okay, right. bye-bye. Yeah, I mean, and that's where the confusion is easily understood. You know, there's so many different pots of money provincially and federally that it's quite easy for people to hear and think that they're getting some money that isn't coming their way and we try to avoid it at all costs here try to be as fair and as accurate as we can with who qualifies for what but yeah and continue to ask the questions and if i can try to help clear it up i'm happy to try all right let's go to line number one where we're going to be Heard about a new TV show that's going to be on Bell 5 uh, TV. And we've had some big success locally on that particular channel, whether it be the Mrs. Downstairs, uh, Dave Sullivan and Mary Walsh. And now a new show is coming out. It's called Sing Me Home, and it's hosted by this particular great singer and songwriter, Colleen Power, joins us on one. Good morning, Colleen. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Thanks so much for having me on. Hello to your listeners. I always happy to have you on, Colleen. And you know, when I heard about this show, it just seemed like an idea that I can't believe it hasn't been a TV show in the past. It's a beautiful way to travel the province, to look at different communities, and associate it with song, which of course is a big part of our culture and heritage. Tell us about the show. It it was a real thrill. To, I didn't know really what I was getting involved in, but uh, it was probably the best experience I've ever had as a, a singer-songwriter. I'll be 30 years in the business next year, and uh, <laughs> and it was my first time hosting a television show. And so I was approached by Xavier George um, of Seabell Productions here in, in St. John's, uh, out in uh, Pooch Cove, and uh, and director Martine Blue, uh, and they asked me to be the host of this show where I would travel around to places in Newfoundland with, uh, you know, charming kind of whimsical uh, name, curious names, <laughs> which we have a, a fair amount of, and uh, and meet the people, you know, and dig into the history, uh, find out all kinds of things about the, the communities, and then my task was to write a song for each community. <laughs> Nothing to it. 
<laughs> it was amazing. Uh, you know, I've been commissioned. I, I was for, formally commissioned by CBC Radio One to write a lot of different, like, political songs, uh, current events songs, things like that. They were, and, you know, the pressure is on with these commission songs, uh, but this was a real pleasure to do because I got to take in so much, you know, beautiful scenery, gorgeous communities, that, you know, some that I had never been to before. And just the people are amazing. You know, it's, it, it's kind of like, a, it's a travel, kind of like a travel show, but you know, with a twist because you come out of the, at the end with a song. Uh, so, you know, I, I had a time limit for the song because <laughs> the shows are pretty short. You can watch them all now, um, all at once. If you want, you can go on Bell 5 TV um, and it's Channel 1 or on the app. And you can just, uh, you can start off with episode one and you can go right through to episode six and watch them all the one time. So that's really cool. It's like Johnny Harris with his show trying to apply a, a unique comedy bit to the towns that he visits. This time it's a, all about creating a song to represent the community. Give us some idea of some of the communities that you did visit. So we, uh, we started in Cupid's. And uh, that was the very first place we went, um, you know, and of course that town has so much history, um, you know, with John Guy and everything. We went, we got into all that stuff and we visited the plantation and, and you know, and then we went on to, and of course, other different things we did in the community. I could go on for an hour, I suppose, about each community. <laughs> and then um, we had a scheduling change and we ended up doing Kitty Vitty Village. And that was really cool because that's a community in itself, of course, you know, with so many, um, so much history and so much on the go down there now um, with, you know, the the breweries. And then, you know, you, you've got the Mallard Cottage and we went and visited Todd there and, and we visited Linda at the end of old, you know, it was just, uh, it was such a fun time. And then we went to, where did we go then? I think we went to Heart's Content, Dildo. Lawn and Fortune. So that's the first six, and hopefully we'll get some more. But uh, it, it was such a fun, such a fun show, and you can learn. I learned so much. I couldn't believe how much I learned, history-wise, visiting everywhere. You know. Give us a couple of uh, examples. Okay, so um, let me see. I had no idea about uh, kid, the kiss, the the different. Uh, <laughs> Kitty, go back to Kitty Witty again, but you know how many um, the different the pronunciations. Of course, I've heard my, my mother and everybody say Quadavida, uh, and the divide over there with the Quadavida and Kitty Witty was astounding, and and everybody's reasoning for for the name. And I had no idea that there was like folk local folk folklore of a of a lady named Kitty Witty that used to have mm -hmm. like a little <laughs> shop. I didn't know any of that stuff. Um, in in uh, in Lawn, um, when we went there, I actually got to um, meet people who knew my own relatives who I had never met in Lawn. I you know I'd never been there. Um, I did have relatives there. That's where my mother's side of the family actually came from. Pork to Lawn, five brothers. They were Connors. So I've got and we visited the Trucks and Pollux Museum and some really helpful ladies came chasing after me when I was leaving with info on my family from the archives and I was blown away. Um, you know, and uh and fortune um I was 
the song from Fortune ended up being about the um, the all, all of the fossils and the art. You know, all, just I really got uh, absorbed into that the archaeology and the and the fossils and <laughs> learned a lot about it. So it was real learning experience for me. And I mean, everyone in the province would enjoy the show, but I'm, I'm sure everyone, a lot of people from outside of the province, I mean, the cinematography is fabulous. Uh, Cecil Johnson was our cinematographer and it's, it's breathtaking. So I really, uh, you know, even if I wasn't in the show at all, I would be <laughs> saying, watch it. <laughs> it's on my watch list. And, you, you know, you mentioned having to write a, a song reflective of the community. So it, in Cupid's, how much Sam Cooke or Leapy Lee bled into the tune? <laughs> <laughs> None. None. It was, I, I tried to get as much as I could. Um it was it was interesting because we started off with Cupid's and the approach that I took was try to get everything into the one song but I had a time limit for each song was only two minutes and 30 seconds like <laughs> how many how many songs nowadays come out that are two minutes and 30 seconds you know like we're talking going back to like Chuck Berry and <laughs> those guys like early Beatles so, well of course it used to be if you wanted to get on the radio it had to be two and a half yes Exactly, yep. exactly. But you know, nowadays it's kind of, it's, 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 we, we kind of go on a bit longer, sometimes up to four minutes. But uh, writing a song, get it all in there in two minutes and 30 seconds. For Cupid's, I started out to try to get, I packed everything I could in there. And then other episodes, I was like, okay, well, I got to focus on something specific <laughs> to, uh, you know, and I'm so happy with how they all turned out, I, I got to say. Yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing them. Uh, just very quickly, and I don't want to end on a sad note, but when we talk about the arts community, it's all very close-knit, whether it be singer-songwriters or producers and directors and sculptors and writers. You know, you mentioned Martine Blue, and, of course, she would have worked uh, closely with Paul Pope uh, with her feature film, Hunting Pignut. And everyone in the arts community knows everybody else in the arts community. Uh, Paul was a great loss. He was indeed. Um, you know, I kind of, for some strange reason, I never really got to connect with him in the community. I guess because the music scene and, and the film scene sort of, you know, there was a little divide there. So I really didn't know Paul for some Is strange right? reason. But, but you know, uh, so many people around me are, are, are devastated. And I certainly, you know, recognize all of the contributions he has made. Um, it's it's certainly someone who will not be replaced. It's someone I've always wanted to interview now, but I won't be able to get the chance to do that. It's, it's very, very sad. What a huge loss. My condolences to everybody. Yeah, and I'm sure people appreciate that. And Martine, of course, would have been feeling it uh, these last few days. So go check it out. It's called Sing Me Home. It's on Bell 5 TV Channel 1. Colleen, good luck with it. I'm looking forward to seeing the show and appreciate your time this morning. Thank you so much for having me on, Patty. Take care. You Thanks too. a lot. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And I mentioned to Sam Cook, who wrote a song called Cupid, and the one that always brings me back to, of course, the Roman god of love, said to be the son of Mercury, Leapy Lee with little arrows. Don't go ahead. Back. Let's go to line number three. Good morning, William. You're on the air. Uh, yes, Patty. I was a little bit, uh, by the way, you're doing a good job there. Thank you. Yeah, well, I just wanted to ask you a question that uh, if you're 75 plus, are you still entitled to that $500 that's been talked about? If the $500, I think you're referring to the impact on your guaranteed income supplement? 
Okay, that's fine. Okay, so all of these pots of money overlap. So it's not going to impact your drug card, and if you qualify for the seniors' benefit increase, you still get to qualify for the 75-plus on your old age security. One doesn't roll out the other. Oh, I see. Yeah. And there's something about the 10% here in July or something? There's an increase coming on uh, GST, HST checks in July. That's right. There you go, Patty. You're a good man. You're right on the ball. <laughs> I'm trying to be. I find <laughs> the senior did stuff confusing. Did you avoid the COVID? Uh, sorry, say that again, please. Did you avoid the COVID? So far, so good, sir. Good, wonderful. It's good news. Yeah, how about you? Oh, no, yeah, so far, so good. I'm staying within the bubble. Yeah, I mean, I I suppose I've been lucky enough to be able to come to work every day and right, yeah. get out and see my buddies a little bit and saw my family over the weekend. Yeah. Uh, I've avoided it. It's been in a couple of my sister's households, but we haven't got it yet, and uh, uh, it's kind of amazing. My wife's in education. My boys work and go to school. I go to work, but... Boy, oh boy, I'm not looking forward to getting it, even though I'm told that no, we're all going to get it. Nobody wants that, that's for sure. That's oh, I don't. Mine's for sure. Absolutely. But, but i tell you one thing, that uh, my daughter had it down in a cab here, uh, and her husband never got it. Yeah, the two of them were together all the time. She got it, and he didn't. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's uh, there's a couple of strange tales out there. And yeah. like one of my buddies said the other day, he's around my age, he's extremely healthy and fit, and uh, someone said, you know, we're all just standing on the uh, on the street having a gab as you walked by. And someone said, uh, has the COVID been in your house yet? He says, not that I know of, because maybe he, I mean, some people might have had it and really not even entirely realized they did. So anyway, we're at a funny spot here and I really don't want to get it. I'm planning on getting a, a change of scenery coming up in uh, July. So boy, oh boy, I, I try not to think about it too much. No, that's right. Try not to think about it, right? Yeah. yeah. Well, anyway, like I said, uh, I hope you maintain your health and all your family as well, and I hope you'll enjoy and have a good summer. I appreciate that, William. The same to you, sir. Yeah, have a good day now. You too. Thank you. Yeah, bye-bye. Right, bye-bye. All right, I, I did get an email, and the lady said that uh, she enjoyed a couple of calls that we had last week. There was a home chef and a professional chef. We were talking about healthy eating that day a little bit, and, you know, there were some helpful tips given out. So she encouraged me to make it a fairly regular segment. You know, try to invite different dietitians or folks who work with different types of uh, meal preparation plans. You know, maybe that's a nice break in some of the action. And I'll admit, I'm taking my first swing ever at making pea soup today. You know, I do a lot of cooking, and I'm pretty good at soups and the like. But my first swing at a pea soup coming up today. I'm a little bit nervous. I don't think it... I don't think you can really shag up a pea soup, can you? Uh, I'm going with ham. Dave asked me if it was ham or salt beef. I would prefer salt beef, but it was a bit of compromise between myself and my wife. We're going with ham. If you have any uh, helpful tips, I'm not so sure I can make the dumplings or the dough boys because they're guaranteed to be a flop if I go at that, but... Any tips for Patty's pea soup? That or anything else you want to talk about right after the news. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number two. Good morning, Trevor. You're on the air. Oh, hey, Patty. Hey there. Hey, how's it going? I heard you're uh, looking for some advice on uh, pea soup. Yeah, well, I'm uh, I'm uh, spreading my wings and I'm putting pea soup into my inventory of dishes that I prepare. And I know it's not going to be too complicated. Just any helpful tips. I know we got it low and slow, keep it stirred and all that stuff. Because once the burnt taste gets in it, you'll never get rid of it. So what do you got for me, Trevor? Well, the best thing is uh, 
pea soup's going to taste better in 24 hours. Right, yeah. That's the, that's the first thing. But um, if you want to call my mom in Clarenville, <laughs> she's she's fantastic at pea soup. Is that right? Yeah. So if you want to contact her, she's got all the info. Would your mother mind if I called her this afternoon? No, not at all. <laughs> I think she'd be tickled pink. <laughs> What's her name? Her name is uh, Yuna. Yuna. Okay. What's Yuna's number? Uh, it's 466. Yeah. 1007. <laughs> Give her the heads up for me. Does she listen to this show by chance? Uh, every now and then, yeah. Okay, so hopefully she's listening today. So either you give her a heads up or she's getting a heads up now that this afternoon, time permitting, I'm going to give you a call so I can try to <laughs> conquer my first pea soup. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I prefer the salt beef as well. Yeah, me too. <laughs> uh, I've been I'm in Ontario, so I keep buying the uh, Hobbiton French-Canadian pea soup in the cans. Yeah, you know what? Every now and then my wife picks it up too here in the grocery shelves uh, here in St. John's. It's not yeah. bad. No, it's good. It goes on sale, and it's like it's close to mom's, but you know, <laughs> nothing ever beats mom. mom's. No, never. Anyway, that's what I wanted to call in about. Good man. Appreciate the time, Trevor. Yeah, and go caribous. Oh yeah, so <laughs> down to nothing. They got to win the night. I know. We'll see. Yeah, we'll see. All right, good man. Thanks a lot, Trevor. All right, take care. You too. Bye bye. Uh, and, you know, it's just so funny what uh, seeps into people's minds. I got a dozen emails about pea soup during the news. Oh, it's so good. Let's go to line number uh, one. Good morning, Michelle. You're on the air. Oh, yes. Uh, hello, Patty. This is Michelle. Um, I Excuse my voice, but I'm very sick. Um, last week, I just wanted to let you just... Uh, tell you what happened to me last week okay. was that I, I went down to get my blood work. I had to wait two weeks to to get an appointment. And I went down to, uh, uh, I guess I can say St. Clair's. Uh, yep. And uh, I had, when I went down there, there was, um, now I thought that this, with this COVID thing on the go, that they were trying to take appointments and keep, people safe, you know, and uh, when I went down there, there was 13 people ahead of me in the lineup, and another 10 people gathered behind me, and we weren't, we weren't separated, we were, uh, we all had our, I did, I had my mask on, and I believe most everybody down there had their mask on, but, um, then one man said, well, what time is your appointment? And he said, 12 o'clock. And then everybody said, well, mine is for 12. And another woman says hers was 12.30. And there was seven or eight people had 12.30 appointments. Every, everybody was like, oh, my God. Well, our appointments, all of our appointments must be for 12.30. So 13 people, we were over an hour. I'd say in over an hour and a half, standing up, waiting, um, like sardines, <laughs> trying, with, one, with only one girl on the desk, because the other girl was gone to lunch or whatever. And and I thought that they were trying to be, to, to keep people safe. That's why that people had appointments. But um, anyways, I came home. 
and now I had to go down to emergency yesterday because I couldn't breathe. I went for eight hours down at St. Clair's again. They took me by ambulance yesterday, and I ended up down there sitting down with my mask on in the room with other sick people, me not knowing if I had COVID and not because I had because I believed that when I was down last week to get my blood work, I had picked up something definitely. Anyways, they did a chest X-ray, and they said you definitely have something, but we're not going to do a COVID test here at the hospital. You got to go now. Call eight one one and go and get the government to pay for the taxi. And for me to go in and get a COVID test. Now, I'm really sick as a dog. If you heard me this morning cough and you, you, I was like an hour cough. So I'm trying to figure out what, how people, how are they keeping people safe by keeping everybody the same appointments? and keeping us all in the same lineup for over an hour, an hour and a half. I'm not quite sure how long it was, but it was definitely an hour and a half. And then the eight hours I waited yesterday, I couldn't get a COVID test. So now i got to go back out again, get a taxi, and get a COVID test. And I just wanted to let you know that, and I just want to... That's all I wanted to say. Well, I hope you're on the road to recovery, Michelle, and thank you for your time this morning. Yeah, I was wondering what you thought. Well, what you thought about that? Uh, which part in particular, the wait time or the inability to get a test? Uh, um, well, not being able to get a test after waiting eight hours, and and having to go down because they they said they were trying to make everything safer by giving everybody appointments. And, you know, I, I didn't, it, everybody seemed to have the same appointment. So there was, third, I counted the people ahead of me, and there's 13 people ahead of me. And it was, it was working out better when you just walked in, went in, waited for 15 minutes, went in, got your blood work, and went on again. So I guess that's what I'd like to to. It's it's not working that way with appointments. It's 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 making things longer, and it's making a lot of people um, being stuck together in a small room for a long period of time. Um, and since then, now I'm after picking up something, and they said I definitely got a virus, but I de- got to go somewhere else now and get tested anyways well the unfortunate reality and this has been long in place that you'll go to the waiting room whether it be at one of the clinics at the health sciences or in the private clinic and so many people in the room have the exact same appointment time i know they overbook just in case people don't show up or they cancel late in the day or at the 11th hour so that the doctor continually sees patients throughout the day but you know, not good enough for people to have to wait like that. And the inability to get a test is becoming more and more common. 
And the thing the thing was is that I was in major pain yesterday in my chest. Right. And they did an X ray but it only takes a couple of minutes to do a COVID test. Now I gotta go somewhere else and get a COVID test done through call eight one one and get them to set me up an appointment and I was there waiting for eight hours, so why couldn't it have been done in the in the emergency room? And then they brought me inside where everybody else was sick in the beds. So, you know, who else picked up what I had yesterday? It's a fair question, because that's what we've been told all the way here is these tight, congested quarters without the ability to give everyone a wide berth. So I'm sorry to hear that happened to you, Michelle, but I wish you well, and I thank you for your time. Um, the only thing I was going to say is that why don't they just let the blood work thing go back the normal way? Because it was... It seemed like it was working better that way. Anyways, happy belated Easter and take care. And I know there's a lot of awful things going on in the world today. So my my situation is only one small thing. So anyways, take care, Patty, and I'll talk to you some other time. Sounds good, Michelle. Be well. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, final break of the morning. Don't go away. Welcome back. Let's go to line number four. Terry, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. Um, I just want, I just want to just give a uh, just a little brief experience with Service Canada today at the passport office. Uh, I sent you a, a tweet a few minutes ago. Uh, took a couple pictures, but um, it, it's just I understand that they're a little short staffed and and the waits could be uh, a little long, and that's understandable. But uh, my experience is a little bit less than desirable this morning. It's it, this morning. It's, it's you know it's it's, it's a very cold day and wind chill. It's probably been minus 15. I'm not sure exactly what it is. But they're queuing everybody outside. And um, when I finally got inside after about a two-hour wait, I looked inside in the waiting area. It's a beautiful waiting area inside. It's huge. With about five people waiting. And everybody's outside freezing to death. I've seen people there with, uh, you know, just with leggings on and, and, and almost almost summer gear and not expecting to wait so long. But like waiting outside, it almost seems inhumane. Um, and I don't know anybody from Service Canada who could be listening, but like uh, having people wait outside in this in these frigid temperatures, it just doesn't seem right. And once you go inside the door, there's another queuing line to get into the final waiting line to see an agent. And and the people I was speaking to are really nice and everything, but like having to spend so much time waiting outside on the sidewalk in the bone-chilling, frigid temperatures, it just doesn't seem right. And um, I, I don't know, and I think the rationale is to have, you know, the social distancing, but you have one chair with about six chairs with X's on them. And um, I, don't, I don't know. It just, it just doesn't seem right to me. You have a beautiful building, a big waiting area inside, but knowing that no one's there, five people, maybe six at the most. I, I just know, know what your thoughts on it, but to me it just didn't seem right. It seems just wrong uh, to have people wait outside in the frigid temperatures. I'm looking at the, I'm outside in the parking lot now, looking at the at the building and looking at the Canadian flag. It's almost ready to blow off the mast there. It's just so windy and cold. Yeah, well, a, a few things. So 
we knew this was going to be part of the concerns that people would share when it's one thing in the summertime to be uh, asked to wait outside, quite another when the weather is cold or raining or snowing or whatever the case may be. Even in my mind's eye, I can picture the setup where the passport office is. Even if there was an opportunity for, you know, to queue up against the wall on the main floor and or in the hallway leading into the passport office, giving everybody the wide berth and requiring or requesting a mask, there's got to be a better way than just lining up outside on the sidewalk. Absolutely, absolutely. And and we're all obeying. And, and a lady from the commissioner, she was wonderful, you know, and just doing her job. And uh, and you can peek in through the tinted glass and barely see the queuing line and it's and it's empty, but but where people are huddled together outside. <laughs> so if, it's in, if you're going to get it, COVID, you're going to get it outside because people are huddled together and people are. And and another note, you know, you know, I go down to a local restaurant downtown, and if there's going to be a long wait, they'll just take your cell phone number and go wait in your car. Like the technology is there. It's not like it's we're not back in 1976 here. Like even if they had some other way to just uh, message you when, when it's ready to go in, because you know, they're calling for weather to pick up this afternoon and, and get, you know, driving rain. It's just going to make it more miserable. Yep. You know, uh, I had the unfortunate experience yesterday. I've had to go through the line second time for, because of a technicality. And yesterday was a beautiful day. Okay, well, that's fine. But today it's just miserable, right? It'd be a miserable day to be lined up outside. There's no doubt about that. I appreciate the uh, conversation and the issue this morning. Terry, thank you. Thank you. All the best. Take care. Bye-bye. Uh, what do I do here? Line number two, Frank, you're on the air. Thank you, Hi, Frank. Hello, Frank. Yes, uh, Paddy. Yes, sir. Time to turn on the radio before it shags us up. Yeah. Uh, okay. Uh, on time with the, the GST now, like I mean, is that for everybody in July 1st or, or just, just for disability? Well, any increase, like there was a pretty significant increase to the GST last year, and it's also it's always just based on your tax return. Nobody has to apply specifically for GST, so when you file your taxes, whether or not you qualify for GST is acknowledged right there at the time of tax filing, so nobody has to do anything extra. Whoever is due, whatever in GST is automatic after you file your taxes. Now, uh, uh, I was going to say, see, I replied my tax rate, see, I'm on social system, I guess it's GST and HST, right? Yeah. But I'm a low income, right? Only, only making uh, something like eight thousand something. Yeah, whatever you qualify for, as long well, you have to file your taxes to get uh, the GST HST rebate anyway. So yeah. whatever category you fall into, and the whopping big increase we saw last year was across the board for singles, for families, uh, or married or common law partners. But so no one has to worry about doing anything specific for GST. Just file your taxes, and away you go. Okay. Now, Paddy, no more thing. Now, I know it's not entitled to it, but uh, the, uh, the, that thing is, uh, is $500, right? Now, uh, now is that, that's just for old age, isn't it? Like, people is 75 and up, right? The, the 75 up, they would have already gotten their one-time $500 check, and now it's going to be a 10% increase on their old age security from here on. Oh, all right. Thanks, Doctor Freddy. You're you're welcome, sir. All the best, Frank. Okay. All right. Bye. All right. We'll uh, leave Frank as the last word here for this morning. But uh, thank you very much to all of the helpful tips regarding my my pending pea soup adventures this afternoon. One quick one, and reply on Twitter. You know, I know to try to keep it from burning, it's got to be low and slow, and to stir it and the like. Someone said to drop a, a spoon or a fork into the bottom 
to stop it from boiling and burning. Is that is that a thing? I don't think I've ever heard of that before. Anyway, I'm going to go low and slow, and I'll report back in the morning. All right, uh, good show today. Big thanks for everyone who supports the program. All of the callers, listeners, emailers, tweeters, you're all right. We will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.